Hi, and welcome to FIA's Market Voice Podcast. I'm FIA's President and CEO, Walt Lucan. This podcast and the two that accompany it features interviews with members of the 2023 class of the FIA Hall of Fame. FIA established the Hall of Fame in 2005 to commemorate our 50th anniversary. Inductees come from both the private and public sectors and include men and women who have contributed their time, talent, and passion to building the clear derivatives industry and supporting its members. In this podcast, we'll feature the following individuals. John O'Brien Sr. set R.G. O'Brien & Associates on a transformative journey to become the oldest and largest independent futures brokerage firm in the U.S. James Olaf was a trader, exchange leader, and technology executive who played a critical role in the industry's move from open outcry to electronic trading. Throughout her distinguished career, Caroline Silver advised on some of the biggest and most transformative deals in our markets, from the ICE acquisition of NYSE Euronext to the Hong Kong exchange takeover of LME. And Rosalind Wilton inspired a new generation of leaders as the first woman to be elected to the board of any major exchange across Europe and the UK. John O'Brien Sr. set futures brokerage and clearing firm RJ O'Brien & Associates on a transformative journey to grow and distinguish itself globally, assuming the role of CEO in 1986 and as chairman in 2000. O'Brien was a principal shareholder and decades-long board member of the firm his grandfather founded in 1914. As a floor broker and highly successful trader, he had a reverence for his firm's clients, RJO employees, and the futures industry. He had an unwavering focus on building personal relationships with clients and prospects, traveling far and wide to meet with farmers and ranchers to understand their challenges. A visionary, he positioned the company as a leader that stepped outside the box to grow beyond its agricultural futures roots. John had an extraordinary focus on client service and was instrumental in growing RJ O'Brien into the largest independent futures brokerage and clearing firm in the United States, and probably the most successful family-owned FCM in exchange history. He spent his career promoting futures markets and was a driver of the industry's expansion internationally. John leaves a big legacy of significant achievement, strong family, and deep friendships. Futures market participants around the world will benefit from his impact on our industry for years to come. He was a visionary. He saw where we could go. He pushed me towards positioning the company to do things differently than the others. He used to say, like, let's not be a sheep and just follow all the other sheep into slaughter. Let's think differently. Let's think out of the box, Corky. And uh, that's what we did. The futures model was uh, for FCMs in our category, you know, independent FCMs was to hire uh, middlemen who would go out and recruit IBs. And then the middleman would take, you know, a large part of the gross profit of that um, relationship with the IB. Johnny's vision was, we're just going to hire a sales staff. We're going to compensate them very well, but they're not going to get a piece of the commission pie. So as we grow an IB network, and the IBs grow, um, the gross profit that we earned was going to be much higher than our competitors. That was way out of the box thinking at that time. He and Jerry Corcoran were really good at having a vision um, to take the company international and to grow it uh, electronically as the markets became more and more electronic. Uh, So they not only had the vision, but they had the execution skills to pull it off. And it's one of the reasons they became one of the largest 
uh, firms in their in their field because uh, not everybody could pull that off. He was very orientated to how do we eliminate the risks that are going to hurt us. He had a keen sense of um, character. He had a keen sense of the types of trades that were very dangerous. For instance, you know, short options. Short option trading was very popular because it, it seemed easy as you're always taking in premium and but every once in a while you're going to get tagged. He didn't like concentration risk. He was really one of the first people to say like, how's this guy going to get out of this market if something bad happens? He's not going to be able, there won't be enough liquidity to get out. It was very important to bring in high quality talent. It was obviously very apparent to me right out the get-go when I first met Johnny that it was the character that that was most important and the revenue would follow. Johnny always said that his father said that uh, we are the ones with the white hats, you know, alluding to the good people in the westerns uh, in the old days. I certainly think that I'd probably be better off um, hiring someone maybe or looking at an opportunity that maybe didn't exactly work out on the financial aspect but they were good human beings and we parted ways than ever taking a chance on someone who's questionable. It's just not an option. Johnny viewed risk very seriously. He felt responsible for every employee, every client, and their families. And he was not willing to jeopardize that for making money. Providing customer service with passion, energy, integrity, and risk management. But one of the hidden secrets of us as a firm is we want to do that all with joy. This was a, a very, very stressful industry with emotional highs and lows, and we thought it was important to keep a positive mental attitude on a daily basis. We wanted our employees to like us as senior management and owners, and we liked them. We wanted our employees to like our other employees. We wanted our employees to love and like our clients. We wanted our clients to actually like our other clients because we always had you know, activities and brought them all together. We try to create this atmosphere of happiness and joy. During his career, James Olaf has been a trader, exchange leader, and technology executive. He was a longtime member of the board of the CME Group and a leader of its predecessor boards overseeing multiple key transactions and company milestones. As chairman of the exchange's strategic planning committee, Olaf played a leading role of CME's journey from a member-owned organization to a demutualized exchange and the nation's first publicly traded marketplace. Olaf helped to guide the exchange's brokers and traders through the critical transitions from open outcry to electronic trading as chairman of the Electronic Transition Committee, and he chaired CME's Professional Responsibilities Committee. In 2002, he became deputy chairman of derivative software company FastFill, and from 2017 to 2019, was a founder and non-executive director of risk management technology company, KRM22. Well, I want to welcome Jim Olaf to the FIA Hall of Fame and congratulate Jim for being recognized by his industry peers with this incredible honor. Uh, congratulations, Jim. Thanks so much, Walt. It's, it's really exciting and I, I'm deeply humbled and touched by it. Thank you. Well, many of your colleagues were in support of your nomination and recognition. So it's, it's, it's an honor to have you as part of this year's class. But I wanted to start at the beginning of your career Everybody has a unique story of how they got into our, our wonderful industry, but how did you get your start in our business? And are there any notable role models that you would want to recognize? When I was at a debate tournament at uh, the University of Kansas, <clears throat> and in the uh, semifinal round, I uh, collapsed on the uh, podium 
And I was rushed to the um, infirmary at the university and they discovered that I had mono and an ulcer. So um, I came back to Chicago um, and my parents thought that it would be best for me to um, recover in Chicago and uh, not go back to college for a semester. And <clears throat> while there, I, I took some classes at, um, at Roosevelt University, but I also, my father was a member at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And since I was pre-law, he said, I think that you need to learn something about the world of business. So he had me come down to uh, the CME. He created a monster. I never wanted to go back to college and I certainly no longer wanted to become a lawyer. So I would say that my father was a major influence in my life, but also in my career. <clears throat> he got me started. He taught me every trading rule that you should not follow. And uh, he taught me ethics. He taught me my moral code. And he taught me about the importance of integrity, which is what our industry was founded upon. Um, but it wasn't just his shoulders that I stood on. I stood on many others. Um, Barry Lind, is the one who gave me the first job in the industry. <clears throat> and he taught me everything there was to know about it. And I worked as a uh, phone clerk. I worked as a runner. Um, I worked as a broker. I worked in the back office. I worked in finance. And um, I think that I got a very, very deep understanding of what the industry was all about. And he also taught me the right principles of trading, which was extremely important. Leo Malamed is a major figure in every member of the CME's lives, but um, he took a special interest in me. And um, we worked very closely. I followed his guidance, guidance he taught me about vision. He taught me the ins and outs of the industry. Um, and we worked extremely well and closely together. I would also probably say that um, Bupinder Gill, Kim Taylor, Tim Dore, they taught me all about the clearing side of the business. and. They were extremely helpful to me when I chaired the Clearinghouse Committee, and we did many good things together. And then I would also add Keith Todd, who, um, first of all, I helped recruit to Fastville, but he taught me about corporate um, governance in the for-profit world. He taught me about software as a service. He taught me how to look at a financial statement he was a great inspiration. And uh, from him, I really got to understand uh, what the business was all about and what the service business was all about. There are others along the way, too numerous to recall, but I think those are the most significant shoulders. You're largely associated with the CME throughout a ver uh, most of your career, and you've seen many things from 
you know, the, the rise of electronic trading to going, the industry going from mutualized to going public as, as an organization, um, to a variety of clearing issues that you've dealt with and swaps coming into clearing. But as you look back over your career, what would you be your notable legacy achievements and what are you most proud of? Clearly the demutualization and going public was critical. But I would say that my involvement with the CME Foundation, I considered to be the most lasting accomplishment. We focused on the underprivileged, but we focused mostly on uh, math education. And we created a program with Ericsson uh, on early math education for children below kindergarten. And I think that that's had a lasting impact. And I think its results are seen now in the math scores in Chicago schools. Um, at the college level, we worked with, with entities to, um, to give financial education and financial support to the underprivileged. I'm proud of that. And I'm, I'm proud of what we did in the middle schools to teach futures to, um, to teenagers and make them understand what finance was all about. So in terms of a lasting impact, I would say that that probably has the greatest lasting impact. The creation of <clears throat> the ethics program at the CME, I think was important for the industry as a whole. Clearly <clears throat> for the CME, for its employees, as well as its members and um, members employees. I think that that had a significant impact. I was given the task of having to um, implement certain strategies and programs that the CME endorsed and approved of. And um, I think that I'm proud of each and every one of those. Quite a legacy and something you Thank should you. be proud of. Um, you know, as I think about the industry, everybody, it is a, in some ways, a, a small family of, of people. And but is there is there some something to encapsulate why you love this industry and why you know this industry has been uh, in your life for for thirty plus years? You know, I I have my own views that uh, you know just the the what we perform for the economy, the people, and it all those things. But I'm just curious from your vantage point. What has left, you know, kept you attracted and in love with this industry over your, your legacy? Well, I would echo what you just said. <clears throat> what initially got me interested was the excitement and the thrill of the markets themselves um, was the initial draw. But I think that the, the quality of the individual and the integrity <clears throat> And understanding that your word is your bond, I think that's what kept me there. Um, no, that's, that's I didn't feel like an automobile salesman, and I didn't feel like a lawyer. I felt I was attracted to the quality of the individual that was there. And it is an industry full of amazing people. So um, I agree. Uh, I did want to sort of, as you think back on your career, 
you know, you have some wisdom and experience to hand down to others. But what advice would you give to a young person maybe starting their career in our industry? A lot depends on what segment of the industry they're attracted to. And you have to look for various skill sets there. Um, but obviously, an interest in the markets and an interest in the economic impact of the markets is critical. Um, but I remember when we first converted to electronic trade, um, I was asked at that time to try to figure out the qualities that people were looking for in traders. And initially, for example, when we started, we had electronic trade and the pits operating side by side. And so there was a natural arbitrage between the screen and the pits. So the biggest thing that they were looking for at the beginning was somebody that was a great video gamer and could move the mouse as quickly as possible in order to take advantage of the arbitrage. And after that, it became important, for example, to look for a good poker player to make certain that somebody understood risk. They understood that you didn't need to play every hand. Then it was a good bridge player, somebody that could develop a strategy and see into the future and see the logical next moves, that in chess. Then it became a person <clears throat> that was good at coding and who was a good strategist who could develop and who could see patterns and understand patterns. Then it became the coder. So the needs in the industry are going to gradually change as we move forward. That's just one example. But obviously, a strength in finance, a strength in ethics, camaraderie, I think those are the important skill sets that would that you would find in every segment of the industry. On behalf of the entire industry, I want to thank you for all that you've done in support of the futures and derivatives markets over the years and congratulate you on this great honor of being inducted into the FIA Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. This is, as I said, an incredible honor. Um, I jokingly commented that in baseball, you have to be out of the industry uh, for five years before you can be considered. So <clears throat> it's been six years for me. So I'm very appreciative. I truly enjoy, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody in Boca. Caroline Silver has carved a niche as the go-to person for any huge transformative deal involving stock exchanges. Over her time in banking, she has advised on Intercontinental Exchange's acquisition of NYSE Euronext and Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearings take over the London Metal Exchange. In 2020, Silver joined ICE's board of directors and served as chair of the board of ICE Clear Europe. With more than 30 years of experience in international investment banking, Silver has served as a managing director and partner at Mollis & Company, leading the Global Financial Institutions Advisory Group. She was also vice chair of EMEA Investment Banking at Merrill Lynch from 2008 to 2009 and spent 14 years at Morgan Stanley, lastly as Global Vice Chair of Investment Banking. She started her banking career in London in 1987, working for British merchant bank Morgan Grenfell.
I want to welcome Caroline Silver to the FIA Hall of Fame and congratulate her on being recognized by her industry peers with this incredible honor. Caroline, congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm really touched and thrilled, Walt. You're sort of known as the the, the deal maker of our industry, um, something that you had a 30-year career developing. But I'd like to start at the beginning of your career um, and really how you got to start in the financial services industry and ultimately in the derivatives industry. Can you take us back on how you got into our industry? It's not a, a, a straight and linear path in the sense that um, I left university as a, a, a fresh graduate in English and Spanish. So no particular relevance to the financial industry, let alone the derivatives industry. And I thought I'd better show people that at least I could add up and uh, establish some business credibility. So I went to qualify as a chartered accountant. Um, that's a fairly common route in the United Kingdom to get yourself a professional qualification. And I joined a firm called Pricewaterhouse and I, I trotted up on my first day and my very first audit client, when I had no idea what I was doing at all, all I had was a lot of enthusiasm and a little tin of sharp pencils and a notepad, was a, a, a firm called Louis Dreyfus. And the, the part of the firm that I was auditing as the baby junior audit person was their derivatives business, their commodities trading and derivatives business. And they traded um, everything from physical commodities through to financial futures. And so in my very first um, audit, I got dropped into, into this and, and had to go away and learn how contract worked and what I was looking for. And so I had this background in it. And then I, I carried on being an, an auditor, realized that auditing was actually with respect to all the all the auditors who may be listening to this, somewhat boring. And, uh, and then I left and went into investment banking as soon as I qualified as a chartered accountant. Again, quite a typical route in the United Kingdom to get into what, what's now known as investment banking, but at the time was called corporate finance or merchant banking. And I first went to uh, a, a British firm uh, which was acquired by Deutsche Bank and in that we were generalists of all kinds of deals and then the American firms started to make their way from Wall Street to London and they they had discovered that the knack of getting into clients boardrooms was to pretend that bankers knew about sectors and uh, uh, that they knew as much as their clients did which wasn't true but we were very good at pretending all of us and so the British banks and the European banks sort of figured out that we too had to become sector specialists. So I started to specialize in sectors. And as I worked my way through my career, I moved to, to one of these dreaded American banks, Morgan Stanley, which became my home for 15 years. And during that period, I came to run our financials business as a managing director, worked my way through. And at, when I took over the team, um, I took over a whole team of managing directors who were already covering and looking after all the banks and the insurance companies. So I had to find something as the leader of the team to do to prove that I was I was a, a worthy leader in, in industry terms as well. And there are only two sectors, little subsectors effectively, that were left uncovered. One of them was life reinsurance because nobody in their right mind wanted to cover life reinsurance. So I did that. That was Swiss Re and Munich Re and people like that. 
And then the other one was this strange um, part of the of the financial plumbing world that nobody had really focused on as a as an investment banking area. And that was what we now call market infrastructure broadly. And very quickly, I realized that that, that there were the, this a bunch of companies, quite a lot of them were mutual and were coming to the market. There were transactions to do, quite a lot of them were buying and selling each other. It was actually quite, there's quite a lot of argy-bargy between all the management teams there, the national and all kinds of kind of really good deal aspects in this little piece of the world that no one had really looked at. And so me and there was another sort of little group of bankers around around the firms who discovered this sort of pot of investment banking gold in a way that no one had ever bothered to really look at before. And that's how I came to, to do it. And I principally started that at Morgan Stanley, carried on at Merrill for a year, and then the last 14, 15 years at an independent firm called um, Molis Company. So during that, that journey, I'm, I'm wondering, are there notable uh, mentors for you or role models that helped you along the way? There were lots of people inside banking who were who were investment, you know, investment bankers. There was one in London, uh, a guy called Simon Roby, who worked with me at Morgan Stanley, who was fantastic um, and really good in the in the sort of the nuts and bolts of the investment banking. But actually, what I I would say is that. There were a couple of figures within the industry who, who kind of took some, some risk on me along the way and who were therefore very instrumental. There was um, uh, two, two late or former members of, the, of our Hall of Fame were very instrumental, was Magnus Bocker, who was uh, our, our OMX CEO. Um, who, who definitely took a risk on, on Morgan Stanley and me when, particularly when they were doing the deal with um, Nasdaq. Jean-François Théodore from, um, from Paris and then Euronext and, uh, and so on. And then the other, the other thing that was striking to me was there were in, as I got to know the industry, I realised that, that the, the, to some extent the cash markets were interesting, but domestic and straightforward. But the real interest was in these amazing global derivatives, organizations and companies. And the two that were hugely formative for me actually were, were the sort of the, the monster that, 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 that grew from the, the Chicago hub being CME and Terry Duffy and the team there. And then you know, the upstart that grew down in Atlanta, which is Jeff Sprecher and, and ICE. And, and I would say for me, the star that, that I was most impressed with was, was what Jeff had built with ICE and how he showed that you could take something and really just turn it on its head and, and reinvent. And, and Leo had done the same over at CME. So that that piece, those, the, that cohort of, of, of really amazing US derivatives leaders that shaped and changed the industry globally. Those were, those were the, the people who, who I, I really enjoyed working with. You enjoyed working with Jeff so much, you actually were invited to join his board, which is, I'm sure, continuing oh, interest in our industry. I know, and, and actually, you know, if you'd, I was said along the way that, that you know, it was a fantastic company. Um, and I have to say that, that, that however, Jeff and I found ourselves in equal amounts of time on opposite side of the tables. And so when, when back in a few years ago, it was a 
executive search firm approached me and said, we are looking for someone for that role. And I said, are you really sure? Because, I, you know, that, that could be, Jeff might think that's a really good idea or a really bad idea. And frankly, it could go either way because we've been so many times on both the same side of the table and the opposite side. And it is, as, as you know, Walt, it's a, it's a small world, um, this, this derivatives industry. It's, um, it's highly competitive, of course, but actually it's also, it's a very intimate, small group of people who who know each other, who've known each other for a long time. And so, so I think, you know, you, you, you never, you're never always on one side or the other. When you started, there probably weren't as many females in the role that you were in to start out. I'm just curious whether you are cognizant of your role as a, a female executive and the, the, the role model that place for others. And what was your experience early on in that, uh, in that world, mostly dominated by men? is a, 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 a male industry. Banking was a male industry, the derivatives industry was, you know, is not dissimilar to many other industries along the way. Um, I think it's actually quite, quite, one of the things that I, I'm proud about from my time in, in this industry and, and banking is that so many of the people who worked with me and alongside me have gone on to do, to, to, to be really important people. Um, and, that, and to, to hold really important jobs. I mean, I had a, such a fantastic team working around and alongside me at Morgan Stanley, James von Moltke, who's at, at Deutsche, and actually a young associate, there weren't many women, but there was a young associate lady at Morgan Stanley in New York, who was very ambitious uh, as well. And her name was um, Jane Gladstone. And um, I always thought it was very, music that of course we carried on in this sector and we were the best of competitors all the time as she was at an independent firm i was at an independent firm and uh, and we used to sort of watch each other uh, see you know ch chasing the deals chasing the relationships and it, i was it always amused me that that it was the two of us doing it and that we both hailed ultimately from morgan stanley and uh, i think it, it it jane i'm sure would agree with me that it, it's both it, it's not been always a disadvantage to be the the person in the room who looks a little bit different, who 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 can wear a you know something brightly coloured and stand out in a crowd. The downside is if you you make a fool of yourself, everyone's going to remember you. But if you say the right things, they'll also remember you as well. So I don't. I always enjoyed and was able to work with with um, sort of being being one of the only women around. I think the other thing is it was hard work. And so you have to decide whether you're, you're, you're all in and, and some of these jobs require you to be all in. And that has a cost that not everybody, male or female, wants to pay. I want to ask you what you're most proud of. Sometimes it's not necessarily the biggest achievement, but you know, what personally are you most proud of as you look back on your 30 year career? I think I touched on it before. It's actually the team that I that I built and worked with, and not just you know one little one little group of people, but over a 15-year period, probably 30 individuals who've gone on, who have all who've all been and still are friends as well, but whose careers have gone on and become really important to to so many important industrial companies largely in the in the financial sector training people up 
doing the right things, um, integrity and, um, you know, solid understanding and also, you know, the willingness to believe in themselves and take a bit of risk around 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 their career. The other thing I'm, I'm proud of is that clients would know that I would tell them the truth. There was never any danger that I was, if I told them that they were the highest bidder and that they'd won, then they'd know that they'd won. And if I told them that they were you know, they were barking up the wrong tree completely and it was a terrible deal. They would know that even if that was a painful message, that, that I was telling them the truth. And I, I think that that, that probably, that's, that, that, that didn't always make me the most popular person in the room at the time, but that's probably what I'm most proud of as well. But what was it about your industry, that, that about our industry uh, that you came into that really made you love it to to stay with it to um what it was of the characteristics about this strange infrastructure in the derivatives industry that uh caused you to fall in love with this aspect of the financial services industry so it's a hidden gem in the sense that it's quite difficult for the the, the, the populace to get their minds round as much and and therefore it's it's not always loved and understood very very much so I think you saw that when, when you know, something like anybody's looking at the deals that have got big clearing houses in them, and the, and the, the world at large, it just can't get their mind around what clearing is, let alone you know the IP that's inherent in the open interest in derivatives contracts and so on. The other, so that, so I liked the complex nature of it. I think that's in the arcade, slightly arcade nature. I love the, the the tech angle as well. So it was it was pushing frontiers all the time, um, pushing to to make make things more efficient, pushing to risk manage, pushing to understand, and and that I think was often underplayed in the early days. People really didn't appreciate the extent to which this industry was shaping and changing risk management across the world. Full of great characters great characters you know very different uh people with big personalities every every one of the major derivatives exchanges got its own character to it shaped by the people who who, who either founded it or lead it uh, so that that's absolutely sort of catnip to a banker sort of these these individual characteristics it's a it's an industry funnily enough of though it's arcane and a little in the background it's full of big characters unlike sort of the the cash markets and so some of those uh, what i might call more in, more historic institutions the truly global you know these 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 contracts these businesses they work across the world the flows of capital are across the world and therefore uh, the, the the ceos often have views of you know global domination and uh, they want they want their businesses to not serve a small local market, but serve the global marketplace too. So that's really really interesting. I, I remember Morgan Stanley taking when I, I sort of came up with this idea of there was five or six of these big possible demutualizations, possible takeovers, consolidation. Blah, blah, blah. And I went to the head of our European firm and said. I'm going to spend some time on this. I'm going to, you know, dig into this. We're going to get hired by this. This is my my aim. And he said, 
good heavens, you know, why, why, what are they going to do? And I said, well, I think they're going to take each other all over, actually. That's what the plan. And he said, oh, well, he said, I suppose someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about being female in investment banking back in the day was it always helped if you had a sort of domain expertise that you could say, you know, I, I'm I'm the lead. And my expertise is early in my banking career were around cross-border, around um, around how to handle complex cross-border transactions. I liked technical, um, uh, detailed technical stuff. And so actually, and then you go back to the fact that way back at Louis Dreyfus, I I got my head around how the futures industries worked and how futures uh, uh, contract was formed and shaped and traded. And so you put those two things together and actually it was a really it's a really sweet spot for me. And companies were just so interesting. And I enjoy running an auction process for something where you know that every major derivatives exchange in the world is going to turn up and want to buy it. And then it becomes just a joy in terms of figuring out, you know, who's who's going to win the dance. You're a good salesperson for our industry. I may have to get you on the road. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I do want to finish up here with, you know, a question about as you think about the tremendous amount of experience that you had have had over the last 30 years, there are new people um, coming into our industry every day that may not understand the passion, understand the uniqueness of our industry. But what advice would you give a young person that may be entering our industry for the first time? I still think it remains an industry where you need a great deal of commitment around it. So so you have to go all in. If I look at at how hard people worked during the pandemic, for example, to keep markets running, and and I think of it as a swan, you know, it didn't get much of a mention during the pandemic, financial markets. That was because an awful lot of puddling under the water was going on, making sure that everything was working exactly as we intended that it should. And uh, and so I think it's a it's not it's it remains an industry for people who want to work hard. Um, I think that I would say to people, be true to yourself. This is an industry where you need to speak out and you need to call it out if it seems to you that things are going down the wrong path because we we manage risk for the world um, basically and if we don't do a good job on that and we let things slide then that has very big consequences these are these these are not um, this is not amateur hour here at all so it's it's about integrity it's about professionalism it's about being all in it's about being true to what you you know to having a clear view on what's right and following that. It's a fun industry as well. It's a, you know, these are, these are, this is the, 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 it's an ecosystem too. So I think getting, getting your, your lens in one part of it, but then being open to exploring different aspects of that ecosystem, whether you go down the food chain into, into the, the tech aspects of it, up the food chain into, into the clearing members, into the client piece of it. it you know, it's, a, it's an ever-changing ecosystem. So I would say to people, keep an open mind as well. Get your, get, get your grasp, work out what it is that you, 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 you find interesting, that, that lights your fire. Be true to yourself, build your own network and uh, work hard and, uh, and have fun in it because it's a, it's a, it's a fabulously uh, interesting place, but it's also a really, really important place 
that's the other thing that's changed. It's a lot more regulated than it was 30 years ago. And being able to being able to build a, a, a strong and open and constructive relationship with regulators, transparent, but where we're each clear about what we're trying to do, that's become an increasingly important part of the job. So you've got to be comfortable working in a regulated world too. Well, Caroline, uh, we're so thankful that you were true to yourself throughout your career. And I just want to thank you on behalf of the entire industry for advancing, growing, and being an interesting part of our industry for the last 30 years. So thank you and congratulations on being named to the FIA Hall of Fame this year. Thank you, Will. It's a huge, it's a huge privilege. I'm truly thrilled and I've been really lucky to work with uh, everyone in this sector and long may it continue. Rosalyn Wilton was the first woman to be elected to the board of any major exchange across Europe and the UK when she was appointed a non-executive director of life in 1985. She also served as chair of the Eurodollar Options Committee, resulting in the first futures options contract to be brought to the London market. During this time, she was managing director and head of institution financial futures for Drexel Burnham Lambert in the UK and Europe. In 1990, Wilton joined Reuters, where she was appointed Managing Director, Transaction Products, with worldwide responsibility for the company's electronic trading business. In 1998, she was the first woman to be appointed to Reuters' executive committee. She continued her career building a financial information and technology company as chief executive and subsequently chair of IPRIO, now part of IHS Market. I want to welcome Rosalind Wilton to the FI Hall of Fame and congratulate her for being recognized by her industry peers with this incredible honor. Congratulations, Rosalind. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Rosalind, I think the committee, when they, they looked at your, your nomination, were impressed by the fact that you were one of the first women directors of life at the time, 1985, but also the totality of your career at at Reuters. We want to start though at the beginning. Give us a sense of how you came to our industry in the beginning and uh, if there were any role models along the way that helped you with your career. From a very early age, pre-futures, called pre-London futures, I was always interested in business. Um, I loved maths, I loved numbers, I loved buying and selling even quite young and I just felt that I wanted to work in the city, in banking. And I went and did a maths degree. And when I graduated in 1973, I then went and met with a number of different companies and they kept offering me jobs in the back office, in accounts department, in administration. And when I asked about front office jobs, it was unheard of. They said, no, 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 you can't do that. And so I carried on all the legwork, as one has to do, and I ended up meeting a company who assured me that if I learned their business, I would be able to be in the front office, have customer on sales, and that sounded perfect. But they had made a decision they would never employ another woman because they'd employed one woman who hadn't been successful and they had to ask the chairman who was away. So I had to wait and eventually they said, fine, you join. So I joined the company. I soon had my clients. I did sales. I'd met my husband. We got married. I then felt pregnant and I stepped down. I left because in those days there wasn't employment protection. 
maternity rights. Um, and so I left. But before I left, the directors of that company had been over to Chicago and they had seen how the futures markets um, were sort of growing there. And they said to me, not knowing that I was going to leave because I was pregnant, they said to me, you know, the London market is going to open up at some point and you'll be great in it. You're very numerate. There are a lot of women in the futures market in Chicago, and this would really suit you. But of course, I left the company, but two and a half years later, in 19, I think it was 1982, I wanted to go back to work before the life market had started. And through a mutual business colleague, I was approached by Sir Brian Williamson. And he asked me to join him in setting up company called GNI and so I joined GNI and he said want you to go to Chicago and meet with some friends there and then come back and it'll open up the life floor when life starts and I met Carol Makoff and Carol was a I wouldn't say was a mentor right at the beginning but she and I got on very well and she was so supportive she really gave me so much knowledge and so much help, so much support and confidence to be able to build a career that I really do feel that she made an impact for me. The life market opened and it was not long until Richard Sandor then headhunted me to come and join Drexel and be his managing director of the London office. And so I could not not take that position. <laughs> Richard being such an amazing visionary, a fantastic manager, fantastic support. And I joined Drexel and the following year, Sir Michael Jenkins, who was then the chief executive of the life market, approached me and said, we would like you to stand as a director of the exchange. And I said, oh, women, don't get um, you know, don't get those positions. And he said, I know, but we want you to be the first. And I always had maintained that as a woman, if I was going to do well, I'm going to have to work 10 times harder than any man. <laughs> and that was always my mantra. Anyway, with a, within 24 hours, I had a, a sponsor and a seconder. And the nominations, I think, closed within 48 hours. And I was duly elected. And I became the first woman to sit on the board of any exchange in the UK and Europe, of uh, whether it's stock exchange, futures exchange, commodities exchange. Um, and with a lot of interesting media press saying I had this that very dubious title, <laughs> strangely. So I love the market. I, I grew into it. I had Carol supporting and I had Richard there, who was this great visionary. And I think that was really the, the first part of that my career in that futures industry. I'm curious how you were accepted on the board. Um, were you an, an equal with the others? And how, how did that those early days go? Yeah, I was actually. Um, I was very much, uh, I can't remember everyone who was on that board, but 
all of the uh, directors there were very, very keen for me to come on the board. And out of the nominations, what I do remember is I came top. <laughs> so um, I wasn't the last one that scraped through. Out of the nom all the, the nominations, I was definitely the number one. Um, and and Brian was on the board uh, as well. Um, my I had Jack Wigglesworth, I think, who was who was then at um, Grenfell's and Charlie McVay from Salomon Brothers, who was the seconder. And I was very much, um, I'd, I'd never ever felt that there was any difference between me as a woman and a man. I just got on with my job. Well, one thing I read in your background of, of fascination was also how you helped uh, the London markets move to electronic, um, that you were part of committees looking at that. Tell us about that journey and what led you to to help them in that transition. My degree was in maths, but I also did a module in computer science very early on. So I was sort of doing programming as part of my degree. I never normally mention that because it's almost like completely in the sort of dinosaur age. And I was fascinated by technology and still am. I love when I think how technology has change the industry, it's all industries, it's extraordinary. And we had, um, we were looking at ways that we could um, make the futures market um, open longer hours and whether it can be, um, a technology could be an important part of it. And we use technology as well for programming, for algorithms, and certainly as part of Richard's group, I was looking after corporate clients, looking at hedging with my maths degree. I used to use sort of my mathematical knowledge. And it was really just an extension of, of that. Um, I chaired the Eurodollar Options Committee for Life. So when we wanted the options market open, I chaired that. And as I said, I helped with moving towards, I just felt that that was where we would go. I, I'm, I can't tell you specifically why I felt that, but instinctively I felt that when I remember as a very young child, when computers first started and how computers were helping to do things quicker, faster, more efficient, and better and I just felt that was going to be an integral part of the uh, financial markets as well. Well tell us a little bit about uh, your time at Reuters and you know a lot of interesting achievements during that period of time but also being nominated as businesswoman of the year. I joined Reuters um, because they had been developing Globex and it hadn't launched and they did not have any market expert there and Obviously, with the demise of Drexel, I was thinking what I should do, but I was really fascinated with this whole arena of electronic trading and Reuters approached me. So I agreed to, to join them. And quite quickly, I could see there was a lot of, you had situation where you had uh, collaborators and competitors with the CME, the CBO team, Matif. They were collaborating, but they were also competing and we had this system and I was given the task of heading the Globex system which is both all the technology and getting it to work plus all the negotiations 
And I spent many a time in Boca at the Futures Industry Conference <laughs> negotiating with um, Jack Sandler, Neil Malhamid, um, Gerard Fordell, <laughs> um, trying to conclude a Globex uh, arrangement. Um, and I, I do remember lots of press that I'm sure you've seen of us trying to resolve all the various moving parts. Either we were rushing around between different rooms around the swimming pool and say, how about this idea? How about that idea? You know, I was juggling away all the balls and I had my team with me who were just fantastic lawyers. And I remember we sat around one table and we all to introduce ourselves. And I, I got to the point where we're about halfway. I said, can anyone who is not a lawyer please put their hand up? There's about four of us. And that was it. About a team of 20 or something. Um, and but looking back, it was it was good, very good fun. Great people to work with. Um, and then we obviously had to launch the Globex system. And I remember, I think it was in the February when we went to launch it, it didn't work the first time. But the second time, there was a, there's a picture of us, which I think I sent through, I don't know if it was in the Chicago Tribune or one of the papers of myself with the various people. Or I had to stand on the CME floor and when they pressed the button to get it working, and you can imagine my heart, <laughs> I think my blood pressure must have gone through the roof at that point, but it did. And it was, it was great fun. Um, I was also put in charge of uh, managing director of all Reuters transaction products, which included all the dealing systems and all the, uh, the foreign exchange system and the business grew dramatically. And as a result of that, and the amount we achieved, um, the company decided to put me forward for Businesswoman of the Year um, without me knowing <laughs> to begin with, but I did find out. They asked me how, and I said, well, surely I was going to be told at some point. Um, I didn't get it, but I was runner-up. That's fine. Um, it wasn't something that I would have ever put myself forward for, but they decided to. I saw uh, Leo Malamed in the fall, and you know oh. he, he claims to be the the father of Globex. So it's nice to find the other parent involved in Globex uh, today. Oh, well, I mean, I, funny enough, I found that when I was going through things, um, trying to find old photos and that, I found a letter from uh, Leo, um, personal letter from Leo to me saying, you know, to have the um, co-conspirators in the Globex project, so to speak. But, oh, he's he was a great man. As you look back on your career, what would you say you're most proud of, either one or two items? Clearly, I have broken some glass ceilings, but I didn't sort of set out as my mission. It was just a, a byproduct of what I was doing. It was a consequence. Um, but I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to build a career and have my family, uh, husband and two daughters, now granddaughters, and be very very blessed to have them i feel very proud that that's uh, i've achieved that with their support but i'm also extremely proud that i've managed to give back and what i mean by that is that i was vice chair for 10 years until i stepped down last year of the harris federation this is a federation of 50 academy schools in london in the south which um has around 35,000 pupils, many from disadvantaged backgrounds. 
and one of those schools I chaired as well, and helped many of those students try to achieve their, if you like, their aims. I mentored them, helped them with career advice, helped them getting work experience. And, and that I feel very proud of. I'm also now um, part of the University of London where I'm deputy chair and both of those charitable positions. But I do feel very prou proud of that, seeing how some of those students who'd never heard of Oxford or Cambridge when they first came to the school are now medics, vets, dentists, or even nurses, and, and just finding a career path for them that they can be proud of. It's very consistent among Hall of Fame uh, members. Um, it's all about how they're passing along their knowledge, their expertise, their wisdom to the next generation. Every one of them has said that that's the, the thing that they're most proud of. It's really interesting. If you had a young person today that you were mentoring, uh, specific to our industry, but even beyond that, you know, what advice would you give a young person that may just be entering our field about uh, what wisdom you'd pass along to them? Whether it's this industry or another industry, you have to be passionate about what you do because everyone is good at something. And the way I used to give a lot of talks to the students at the schools, and they asked me how I got into my career and what career they, I said, you don't need to follow me or anyone else. You've got to find what you really feel passionate. And everyone will be good at something. You've just got to find what it is and then you're passionate about it. You've got to work hard. You've got to be honest. You've got to have good work ethic. And you must never be frightened to ask because when I always remember one of the reasons for wanting to be in futures is not only because of my, my numeracy, but because I was always felt I was the, the junior trainee, but I thought if I go into a new market, I could be more knowledgeable than anyone else. And I just felt that I wanted to be ahead of the game. And I always say to young people, never be frightened to ask a question. Just keep asking until you understand, because that's very important. And have a work-life balance. It is up to you. You don't need to emulate anyone. Not everyone are going to be chief executives or chairman. You, there's plenty of roles where you can be proud of. Just be proud of what you do. And when you go home and think, did I do a really good job or could I have done better? And just the only person you need to be proud of is yourself. That's wonderful advice, Rosalind, for anybody. Um, but I just want to say thank you on behalf of our entire industry for all that you've done to be a trailblazer, to support our industry, to grow our industry at a time when it was just growing up. And now it's a pleasure of ours to recognize you as a Hall of Fame uh, nominee and candidate. So congratulations and uh, thank, you. thank you very much for all you've done. Thank you, I appreciate the time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy, or completeness of any of the podcast content. 
Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.